This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. And this episode is also sponsored by MCE, the local electricity provider for 34 San Francisco Bay Area communities, offering clean energy, community benefits, and the power of choice for more than 10 years. For more information, please visit mcecleanenergy.org. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Tiffany's and Microsoft dig into a new mining standard, corporate advocacy and the environmental movement's racial justice reckoning, why clean energy is charged up about the election, and how big-time investors think about deforestation. More trees, please, this week on 350. It's October 23rd, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as usual from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Greetings, Joel. How are you today? Another beautiful day here in California. They had a great 80-degree sunny, not air-polluted week. How about in Midland Park? We had a all-over-the-map temperature-wise, foggy, beautiful <laughs> uh, fall-autumn melange. Great week, actually. Love it. Yeah. If you don't like the weather, wait That's a minute. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, the uh, the weather here is for both of us has been colored by uh, next week's big Verge mm-hmm. event. I wrote down what are we going to chat about this morning, and it says Verge, Verge, Verge. <laughs> um, I'm excited, uh, even though this is obviously a very different Verge, a virtual Verge, if you will, um, and I will miss seeing everybody hanging at the bar, <laughs> you know, chatting and just, you know, getting hugs and all those great things that we get to do when we've got one or two or 5,000 of our closest friends in a convention center as we would have this week. But, you know, it's looking really good. I'm so excited about the program and and the, the things we have on the virtual platform that'll allow people to have one-on-one meetups and group meetups and random meetups, just like you would if you were wandering around uh, the the expo or something. So w- what's your role next week? Uh, what are you doing? Ooh, I'm uh, jumping from program to program, actually. I'm As you always yeah, do. I am uh, moderating or participating in sessions across the carbon, transport, and startup sessions. Uh, I am also very excited about a main stage conversation that I'm leading on Tuesday called Connecting Communities to the Clean Economy. And we're going to spend some time with, I'm going to spend some time with Elizabeth Yampierre, with Uprose and Rawa Gramatian. She's with Push. Um, We're going to talk about how companies can work more effectively with communities 
to build clean energy programs, to think about transportation issues, and to be more thoughtful about including voices that they might not necessarily be listening to. So I'm, I'm super excited. They're so dynamic. There's so much energy in that. Yeah, you know, uh, between the two of them, I'm gonna have to, uh, I'm gonna have to really amp up my game. <laughs> but uh, really, really excited about that conversation. What about you? You've got some really amazing interviews. I know. I'm excited. Well, I've got uh, I've got a, have an opening and closing. I'm opening the we're opening the show with uh, a conversation with uh, former EPA director and administrator, and of course now the head of sustainability at Apple, uh, Lisa Jackson. And closing the event on Friday, that was that would be on Monday morning, and I'm closing it on Friday with her successor, uh, former EPA administrator. Gina McCarthy, who now, of course, is the executive director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. We'll be talking, uh, I'll be talking with Lisa about the intersection of the work that they're doing and of integrating social justice and racial equity into all of their environmental programs, sourcing and mining and everything else. Um, and with uh, Gina about uh, the intersection of climate and public health and uh, and also the equity side. And, and both of them are just amazing. Uh, Gina in particular, who I've interviewed before on stage. Well, I've interviewed them both on stage before. Um, Gina is just, you know, she does not hold back. Uh, you know, Lisa, because she is a political animal and, of course, a corporate spokesperson in, in, in her role at Apple is a little bit, can be a little bit more circumspect, always extraordinarily inspiring and thoughtful. But Gina just doesn't, hold back. And she didn't even hold back when she was at the EPA. Um, so I love all of both of that. I'm uh, have a conversation with Glenn Wright, who's the president of Shell Energy North America, about these Shell scenarios. Um, Shell has been doing these scenarios for 50 years, looking at different ways the world might be in the next few years. And they updated their most recent scenario for obvious reasons for the 2020s based on COVID. And we're going to talk about that and the implications for energy, the energy transition. And then like you, I'm hosting one of the uh, Verge Accelerate competition, yeah. pitch competitions. Uh, I'm doing carbon. Which Transport. one are you doing? Transport. And then sp speaking of which, I'm, I'm doing two back-to-back uh, -back aviation transport, aviation sustainability sessions uh, for our colleague Katie Fehrenbacher. So um, yeah, lots to do. Yeah, I just wanted to add a thing on Accelerate. It, it's, a, it's a totally different structure. We're going to have these uh, topic-related competitions, and then the, the winners of all those will get to compete on Friday. So it's every day, and twice on Thursday, <laughs> we have Accelerate competitions. So it's it's uh, tons of startup representation, some really great panels. Very, very much looking forward to that. Yeah. Doing little two-and-a-half-minute pitches show. So that's that's next week. Let's look at last week in the Week in Review. Well, I mentioned this uh, story about Microsoft and Tiffany's uh, terrific story written by our colleague, Jesse Klein, uh, about a, a new responsible mining standard put out by something called IRMA, the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. You know, mining has long been a problem, extractives in general, you know, drilling and, and, and mining and forestry and, and and it's been such a problem for so long and it, it because it's so far up the supply chain of companies at the very beginning in fact of of so many companies it, it doesn't 
get all the attention it deserves. And yet you have these horrific uh, runoff problems with acid drainage and alkaline drainage which and metal mine uh, drainage, high levels of lead and other metals from mostly abandoned mines, but also, you know, the water forming chemical reactions with a lot of the things in, in mines and and it shows up in rainwater and snowmelt and pond water and, and streams and going down to rivers. It's 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 a problem, and so we're not even talking about what happens to the land. That's a whole nother bunch of things in terms of strip mining and things like that. And the people. Well, yeah, and the human side, of course. Lest I forget that. Thank you for bringing that up. So uh, there's a new mining standard in town, and and um, it's it's all like so many of these standards. It's complex. It's nuanced. It's it's not so easy to understand. But Jesse Klein did a great job of parsing this and explaining what's going on and talking about uh, how companies like Tiffany and Microsoft uh, are, are engaged in this. So there are two things I really appreciate about the standard. One is the, the focus of IRMA on helping operators do better. In the, in the instance of this mine in Mexico, they've approached them about helping their unions, uh, helping people unionize. And even though uh, the mine was telling, you know, sort of randomly saying, oh, yeah, you can do this. They weren't doing enough to advocate that. So Irma's kind of gone on their case for, for not doing that. And then I, the, the issue for, you know, some of the, the companies that are wanting this, this audit to be done, you're not necessarily going to see them boot these, these people out of their supply chains, at least not right away. They want to see progress and they want to encourage responsible behavior. So they really do want these, um, these operators to get the the the, the audit, and uh, if if they were to, you know, boot them out immediately because of a uh, some some substandard practices in in terms of the the standard, that wouldn't really be as effective as they think um, it could be ultimately long term. So it, yeah, it's a great story. I think more companies just like just as the case with other supply chains, it it. it just goes to show how much is happening that might not be in your purview. It also reminded me of the, of the piece that you just did on MICA. Um, yeah, you know, and just the human rights what's and going, yeah, social and human, aspects yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of social issues, let's turn to a story you did this week, Heather, an interview with Andres Jimenez, the executive director of Green 2.0. Really interesting. Um, first of all, explain what Green 2.0 is. Yeah, so this campaign, it used to be called the Green Diversity Initiative, was started about five years ago with the aim of basically calling out environmental organizations and, and, and helping understand their diversity on the boards, the leadership, the staff. And you know, it wasn't in an effort to necessarily shame them, but it was in an effort to understand you know, exactly who is running these organizations. So in the initial report cards that they've done have focused on the top 40 NGOs and the top 40 foundations involved in the environmental movement. And the new, you know, as you mentioned, Andreas is the new executive director. So I spoke with him about just sort of his focus and, and what he expects to maybe do a little bit differently. And not surprisingly, given his background, he is really advocating more uh, more, more advocacy at the policy level. So he's advocating advocacy, uh, but he's got a, he's got a background with the citizens climate lobby. So he expects to spend a lot of time with members of Congress, helping them understand the, the intersection of climate justice and environmental policy and 
urban policy and so forth. And main thing that I spoke to Andreas about was how companies yeah. could get involved, right? That was so my question. We, What's the role? Yeah, of we here? know so many companies are involved with these NGOs. How do they put pressure on these NGOs to get get better on from a diversity standpoint? And so, you know, that was the main thing I spoke with him about. One, and we've heard this before. One of his his comments was, "You need to spend more time talking to, you know, policy people about this. You need to bring this up. You need to be." pushing them to, to be pushing on, on, on the movement, if you will. So yeah, it's great, great, great energy from him. And, and, uh, I think a super important voice that we need to, 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 to hear more of. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that for all of the talk, uh, to companies about their own diversity and inclusion initiatives, uh, and, and in general, the conversations around the environmental movement being too, too white, um, that this push here is on policy. And um, I found, found that kind of interesting. And as opposed to the usual uh, harangue on companies, which is you need to do this, this, and this in order to be more sensitive or inclusive or diverse. And uh, I found that an interesting, interesting policy advocacy piece, uh, yeah. an interesting approach. Well, and I, I do personally think there's not enough attention um, or intersection within companies on the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives plus the the sustainability initiatives. They seem to be kind of running, you know, separate paths. And there's so much more that could be done with marrying those two mindsets. Um, and you know, I I do believe that frankly, the companies need to get better on this. I've asked about this directly, and I I find and I with respect I find. Not many people have really good answers right now for how what they're doing, and um, that needs to change. I know it needs to change over time, but it, 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 at the very least, people should be having a lot of listening going on right now and a lot of uh, outreach to, to the communities that matter. Yeah, and even though they don't necessarily have the answers, they're asking the right questions, and that's a start. Well, let's switch over, speaking of seeds of change, to deforestation. Um, and in an interview uh, conducted by Julie Nash, who heads the Food and Forest Initiative at Ceres, uh, with uh, Lauren Compare, I think is her last name, who is uh, at Boston Common Asset Management. Uh, she's the managing director and director of shareholder engagement there. To talk about um, uh, how they think about deforestation, climate change in their investments and in the shareholder action that they do. And I think it's important here that when we talk about deforestation and corporate uh, practices, you know, we all immediately think about cutting down trees, uh, specifically for lumber, timber, paper products, all those Amazon and other cardboard boxes. We think about you know, using the, the trees for, for lumber and, and such, but this is usually much more about clearing the land for, for cattle, for soy, uh, palm oil, uh, and, and yes, for timber products as well. But, but these agricultural commodities are, are ubiquitous in our supply chains. And, and this is what I think a lot of this, uh, uh, conversation is about. And the series, of course, did this investor guide to deforestation and climate change, which focused uh, sort of on how investors can be more engaged. So this was really interesting because it's a it's a great window, not just into the topic of deforestation, but 
but how investors and, and you know, we talk about you know sustainable investment firms, but that's increasing or responsible investment firms, but that's increasingly becoming just synonymous with investors as as ESG becomes the fastest growing trend uh, in investing globally. I mean, there was some statistic that said that. 60% of all investment will be ESG in Europe or by European investors in the next few years. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And so now, you know, and we, as we look at all this, I mean, there's one other thing just before I shut up. The other thing is connecting deforestation and climate change and, and what are the problems there? We know, you know, sure, trees absorb carbon dioxide and their, their carbon sinks, but there's more to it than that. And it, it, it's all part of the, the circle of life. It is indeed. The thing that I find fascinating about this, and I'm excited to see this, this is actually one of a, a series that they're going to be doing, no pun intended, on uh, deforestation. Oh, series. But I get it. Okay. A series, series. <laughs> um, but there was a, this just, it made me connect the dots with a report that I read earlier this year on deforestation and a astonishingly large number of very big consumer products companies don't really have a, a stated policy on deforestation. Uh, and of the ones that do, very few have actually delivered on their uh, you know policies around deforestation. And oh, by the way, there's a lot of um, uh, gaps now also at the banks um, as far as whether they look at this as part of a financing decision. So I think this topic especially considering how crazy and happy and and lovey-dovey everyone's feeling about trees right now are is going to be really um something that comes into the fore. I think especially uh I think the with this investors like this asking the question about what's going on way back again at the beginning of that supply chain, you know, are you how what is happening to to make that palm oil grow? Um you know, I I do believe this is one of those sleeper issues that maybe this is the turning point with these with these questions being asked. Yeah, and and it's amazing and I, and I go back and look at how many pieces we've done on this. It's quite a bit. Uh have a have a couple earlier this month uh one on Mars and another on on just sort of the uh how activists are pressing uh, companies in in Amazon and Southeast Asia. But we've written just recently about Estee Lauder company and all of this. We we talk about uh, you know, the carbon offsets and, and how companies are leaning into that in, in forestry. Um, and uh, just, you know, one of the great things, by the way, a pro tip for you listeners, uh, at the bottom of every story on GreenBiz, or, and, and I'm sure you see them, but probably don't bother with them, like a lot of readers, there's a bunch of little black boxes that have tags. So uh, this story that uh, we just talked about uh, with from Sirius has, is tagged forestry, deforestation, investing, and finance and investing. Sounds a little redundant there. Maybe we shouldn't have had all those, but you get the point. As you click on any one of those, uh, you'll see what we've done. And I just clicked on deforestation just to remind ourselves of how many stories and how much coverage and the kind of coverage we've got here. So that's a little, mm -hmm. as I said, pro tip on how to use grief. <laughs> it is better for those to, of you, you know, to, who are new to the, what's this thing called? The internet. The interwebs. Yeah. The um, You you mentioned Mars and I, wanna, I do want to just make one point about them. What, what was fascinating about that announcement which involved their palm oil uh supply chain is 
they had to cut out hundreds of suppliers to to get there. And I mean, it's it's good I to kind of go back to the mining thing I was saying before. It's good that they're taking a stand like that, but I also wonder, okay, they're not supplying you. Now where is that still does that mean it's not happening anymore? Or does it mean you're just not buying from them? So yeah, there's so much going on in this area right now that's uh that's just troubling and perplexing and fascinating. next segment, I'm joined by an executive from one of our Verge 20 sponsors, Neste, the world's largest producer of renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. Jeremy Baines took on his role as president of Neste US a little more than a year ago. He joins us to answer five questions about the organization's strategy. Jeremy, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thank you, Heather. Pleasure to be here. So Neste got its start as an oil company, but it made a strategic shift about 15 years ago to focus on renewable liquid fuels. Give us a sense of what it has accomplished. What important mile markers should we also be watching for? So where have you been and where are you going? Mm. Yes, yeah, so thank you, Heather. Um, Neste has, has actually been around for just over 70 years. It was established mm. in 1948 as a traditional oil refiner to provide energy secure to Finland. But over the decades, it's always been looking for cleaner fuels, how to make it more efficient, etc. And like you highlighted, just over 15 years ago, Neste started developing renewable fuels. Um, we, we, we designed it in-house, and it's a, a, a technology to be able to transform any organic fat oil or grease into a really high-performance fuel. And the real benefit of this are multiple. Firstly, because you're using renewable material, which is carbon captured from the atmosphere, you are recycling the carbon. So it reduces the greenhouse gas emissions from these fuels enormously. The other thing is that the molecules, these organic molecules, are already very similar to diesel to start with. So when you convert them, you get a very clean burning molecule. And with the technology that Nesta developed, we can convert it into a renewable diesel, but we can also use it as a sustainable aviation fuel. And these fuels are so good, you can just drop it into any existing engine and it'll work. So we can use existing pipelines, existing technology, existing engines, it'll just work. And I think these, these are some of the exciting things. And Neste has really been growing its ability to produce these fuels and to bring these fuels to market. We started in about 2010 with just over 100 million gallons of renewable diesel capacity. By 2012, we had nearly 700 million gallons available. And this year, we announced that we're at a billion gallons. We've announced um, another expansion of our Singapore refinery. We've announced that we're going to be constructing another one. So by the mid of this decade, by 2025, we'll be close to 2 billion gallons in production. Um, and, and that's quite a transformation, if you want, for what's worth previously an oil company. Wow. Well, and among one of your more intriguing projects, in, in the U.S. at least, Neste is turning used cooking oils collected in the city of Oakland, California, into fuel for the city's fleet. 
What have you learned from this relationship and how might it be duplicated in other cities? Yes, this has been an amazing partnership with the city of Oakland. So really the concept is that um, in, this, in the city, in the municipal area of Oakland, there are a lot of restaurants. And after they've made their fries, the used cooking oil um, didn't really have a good home. What we've been doing with our partners is we collect this used cooking oil. Then again, using our technology, we transform it into a renewable diesel. And now the city of Oakland's their municipal fleet is actually running on the fuel made from the waste in that city. So it's a real powerful example of a, of a circular economy, if you, if you want. And um, obviously, by, by giving value to this used cooking oil, it's actually putting money back into the community, especially at the time of COVID when restaurants are really struggling. How can Neste help turn corporate waste streams into a resource in a similar way? I think that's a little more tricky because we, we need to have these organic fats, oils, or greases. But at the same time, any industrial kitchen, any process, any industry that uses these kind of oils, we can partner with them. We can partner with them um, across the country to collect their, their waste oils and convert it into high-value new fuels to, for transportation or aviation. Ah, so switching gears to uh, that transportation sector, what is the outlook for sustainable aviation? Well, I think the, the airline industry has been making enormous strides to reduce the um, emissions from their planes by more efficient planes, more efficient engines. But at the end of the day, they're still burning fossil fuels. So then the only step that they have, bar longer electric cables to fly their planes on, is a liquid renewable fuel. And, and the, again, the benefit of a sustainable aviation fuel is that it works in today's engines. So we're working very closely with the airlines, with air, airline, with the engine manufacturers, uh, with the airports to get these fuels into the wing of planes and to make uh, flying much more sustainable than it's been in the past. One last question. Neste has focused many of its efforts in the U.S. on infrastructure in California, benefiting from the low-carbon fuel standard there. What is your priority for the next 12 months? Well, we, we've, we're very excited that uh, we entered also the Oregon market. Um, Oregon has got a clean fuel program as well. Uh, we're excited by the possibility of seeing Washington State or New York also adopting a low carbon fuel standard. And these, these, these standards really allow us to compete on an even playing field with fossil fuels um, because it gives, a, it puts a price on the CO2 that these fossil fuels emit. And so our, 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 we're very much looking forward to entering new, new markets, but also to continue to grow the presence of sustainable aviation fuel in California and across the US. Well, thank you for dropping by, Jeremy. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Heather. You just heard from Jeremy Baines, president of Neste US, a sponsor for next week's upcoming Verge 20 event. Hi, I'm Sarah Golden. I'm the senior energy analyst at GreenBiz. 
There is a traditional principle in journalism to not get too overtly political. But as a person who cares deeply about the future of clean energy and climate, this presidential election feels different. I joined a volunteer network of clean energy professionals a few months ago called Clean Energy for Biden. In the space of a few months, this group has grown to 10,000 people strong. While the network is about the presidential campaign, I've realized that this group isn't just about this election. It's truly about the political awakening of clean energy professionals as a voting bloc. I cut two of the organizers' co-chairs to talk about the organization. Audrey Lee, uh, who until recently worked as the vice president of energy services as Sunrun, and Brandon Hurlbut, who wears many clean energy hats. Uh, he works on two climate tech investment funds, and he's also the co-host of the podcast Political Climate. And previously, he served as chief of staff in Obama's Department of Energy. Here's Brandon and Audrey sharing a little bit about what Clean Energy for Biden does. So we started Clean Energy for Biden uh, back in April around Earth Day. Uh, and really, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a network of volunteers. We're all in here as, uh, you know, professionals in the clean energy industry as volunteers. And we really set out uh, with a goal, really three simple goals um, to fundraise. So we've done over... I think a hundred events, um, and uh, we've raised you know three million dollars. Help get out the vote. So we have ten thousand people that have signed up on our website to volunteer for the campaign, uh, and we have put those people to work uh, doing things like phone banks, uh, texting, uh, and then to uh, support the development of campaign policies to support the clean energy industry and uh, climate change mitigation. Our teams have worked together to pump out, um, you know, hundreds of pages of policy proposals that could be used by a future Biden administration. You know, we're not officially part of the campaign. We're not a political action committee at all. Just a network of volunteers that want to uh, contribute and help. So everything that we raise just goes straight to the campaign. Our group is just amazing. <laughs> it's like such a wonderful team. I like... I haven't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't miss being campaign staff anymore. You know, I did the Obama weight campaign and, um, I'm not looking to be on any more like, you know, campaign staff again, but this is sort of like scratch that itch for me because it's just like a, such a camaraderie with our group and such talent and this organization that has been built, like we could have never imagined how successful it was going to be. It's really it's really awesome. And so I've just really, it's been gratifying to work with this amazing team over the last several months. As clean energy for Biden has grown, I've realized it shows three things about the clean energy sector. First, we're getting better at talking about the jobs inherent in the energy transition. Here's Audrey and Brandon. You know, I've been in the clean energy industry for gosh, 15 years. And so it's been really amazing to see the sector grow um, and to outnumber fossil fuel jobs. It is spread throughout the country. I think all but two counties in the U.S., like there's 3,000 counties in the U.S., um, have clean energy jobs. I um, mean, that it's that it's very local, right? It's, it's when you think about rooftop solar and batteries, it's about local um, electrician jobs, local construction jobs um, in every community. This is a massive industry now. That's, I think, why 
we have um, so many people have engaged is uh, between those different uh, sort of business lines of power generation, storage, uh, electric vehicles, EV charging, sustainable ag, buildings. Uh, we have a whole buildings group as well. Um, there, it's there's many many people working in this industry. There's lots of jobs, and there's the potential for more jobs uh, in this industry is staggering. I mean, Joe Biden thinks he can create millions of jobs, and we agree. For each state, for each location, clean energy means different means different things, right? In a state like North Carolina, solar is a really important technology um, that can bring a lot of benefits to the local economy. Wind um, in the Midwest. So I think, you know, being able to work more locally, I think has been really important for clean energy for Biden and the diversity of our, of our membership. Second, we're not talking about clean energy and climate as a siloed issue. They overlap with all these crises we're facing in the nation. Here's Brandon. We have a public health crisis with COVID. We have uh, a climate crisis, uh, as people can see from, you know, the wildfires and the hurricanes. Uh, that have been happening this year. Um, we have an economic crisis where we have uh, many millions of people unemployed. Uh, and we have a racial crisis that's been going on for a long time. And we're now starting to have this conversation. So I think that this issue will be front and center for uh, Vice President Biden because it touches each of those four crises. Um, we have to deal with climate right now, as those of us know from California with suffering from wildfire. Um, with, you know, this industry, we can reduce, you know, pollution, uh, which affects, uh, COVID and the public health, uh, crisis. Uh, we can address the economic crisis by creating millions and millions of good paying jobs. And, uh, we can do that in an equitable way. Uh, which would address some of the environmental justice uh, concerns that we rightly have. Third, the collaboration created by Clean Energy for Biden mirrors the collaboration needed to address climate change and shows the diversity of talents already in the clean energy sector. We've been able to put our volunteers to work in a very efficient way. We're all, we're all really busy. We all have jobs. We're all really busy and how do you make use of someone, whether they have an hour a week to give or 20 hours a week to give? How do you take someone who's, you know, like yourself, like a communications expert or someone who's a graphic design expert or someone who's a policy expert um, or someone who's a CRM expert? How do you, you know, create, create the structure for people to really contribute um, and make it worth their time? It's what I feel like the climate movement really needs, which is people coming from all these different, you know, uh, perspectives and just aligning. I mean, we've got, you know, industry professionals, we've got environmental justice activists, we've got like top policymakers, we've got grassroots, we've got top names, you know, from clean energy. It's like, it's just, uh, it's quite a coalition. <laughs> You know, it's, uh, we've brought a lot of people together. I don't know what will happen on Election Day, but I believe that, politics aside, the Clean Energy for Biden professional network will live on in some form. For Green Biz, I'm Sarah Golden.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our six, count them, six free e-newsletters. We're going to be launching the seventh one in 2021. Um, you go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with a Verge special edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. And this episode is also sponsored by MCE, the local electricity provider for 34 San Francisco Bay Area communities offering clean energy, community benefits, and the power of choice for more than 10 years. For more information, please visit mcecleanenergy.org.